In 2019, advertising was a $240 billion business. The best advertisers know how to turn our wants into our needs. Diane Weiss, writing for the Houston Chronicle, explains it like this. Advertisers carefully craft messages to turn wants into perceived needs. Think of all the things that we consider necessities today that years ago or in other cultures would be luxuries. A smartphone, a latte, wireless internet service, and fast food or convenience meals. Through commercials, product placements in movies, print ads, and other means, advertising has firmly established the belief to many that these are the things we cannot do without in our everyday lives, even though older people can easily recall life without them. This raises the question, what do we really need? Well, that depends on what it is you're talking about. If you mean the basic necessities to sustain physical life, then the rule of threes tells you that you can only survive three weeks without food, three days without water, three hours without shelter, and three minutes without air. Of course, we all have a sense that human beings have needs beyond these. Many of us discovered during the pandemic that we have social needs. Even some of us guys actually realize we have social needs. Needs to interact with others. The psychologist Abraham Maslow came up with a hierarchy of needs that he believed all humans have. He put basic life-sustaining needs on the base of his pyramid, and on the top, he put the need for self-actualization, a sense of having achieved one's full potential. We all know that we have needs. The question is, what is our most important need? Today's passage will help us understand what it is we really and truly need and how we can have confidence that our greatest need has been met. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. That's on page 708, if you're using some of the Bibles provided there, 708. 1 John chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 6 through uh, 12. While you're turning to 1 John chapter 5, let's recall, uh, recap our sermon series in this book, which we're calling Basics for Believers. John uses basic, simple language, and yet he says profound things. We also came up with our own periodic table for the basic elements of true Christianity. All throughout this book, we've seen various tests for each element. There's the truth test, what we believe, the light test, how we live our lives, and the love test, who and how we love. If the tests show that we don't have these basic elements in our lives, we probably don't have true Christianity. Today's passage is about truth, the truth, about, the truth of what we need, the truth about the only thing that satisfies that need, and truths that give us confidence that we have satisfied that greatest need. So, now that I've stalled long enough, go ahead and read, uh, read along as I read aloud 1 John 5, 16-12. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, 
and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar, because He has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I'd like to frame this sermon like a sales pitch. I'm not really selling anything because the Bible is clear that the answer or the product is a free gift. But in another sense, it costs everything. I'm also not getting a commission. Although the Bible speaks of rewards in heaven, those are more of a a sign of approval from God for being faithful and pleasing God in this life. I'm going to start out with some testimonials, evidence and witnesses that can help you have confidence in the ultimate product or solution that I'm proposing. Then I'll explain what your greatest need really is. And then I'll reveal the product that meets that needs. And I'll even tell you how you can get that product and have confidence that that need has been met. Point number one, the evidence. I hope you uh, are somewhat skeptical whenever you see an ad. If not, you're going to go broke buying all the things that you think you need. If you have any skepticism, you will want to see some evidence of what an advertisement is telling you. You'll want to hear testimonials from real people who have tried the product or hear what the experts have to say. You'll want to hear things like, 9 out of 10 dentists recommend. In this passage, John provides three witnesses that testify to the truth of what he's saying. Let's read verses 7 and 8 again. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. The word testify is the verb form of witness, just like someone who gives testimony in a courtroom. It is the Greek word martus, from which we get the word martyr, someone who witnesses faithfully even to the point of death. The fact that there are three witnesses also alludes to a provision of the Old Testament law that required the testimony of at least two witnesses before someone could be convicted of a crime. Three is obviously greater than two. So the three witnesses we have here are the water, the blood, and the spirit. Let's start as John does with the water and the blood. Look at the first half of verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. What in the world does John mean by water and blood? Well, here's a little chart that shows some of the different uh, ways that Christians have interpreted this passage. First, you'll see some people just say this is, those are both references to his death. If you'll remember when the Roman soldier pierced Christ's side uh, with the spear, water and blood came out, and that was one of the many ways they knew that Christ was literally physically dead. Others have, have seen in this a uh, reference to baptism and the Lord's Supper, since communion uh, is, is so big on the symbolism of the blood. But the vast majority of evangelical scholars agree that the water refers to Christ's baptism and the blood refers to His death on the cross. They can't both refer to Christ's death or they really wouldn't be two witnesses. 
And it can't be the Christian ordinances of baptism in the Lord's table because these come after uh, Christ's earthly ministry as memorials of His earlier work. The only reasonable conclusion, as the majority of evangelical scholars agree, is that John is referring to Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist in the water of the Jordan River and His death on the cross, which involved the shedding of His blood. Why does John place such an emphasis on these two? Why is he so insistent that it's not just water, but also blood? John is likely addressing an early Gnostic form of the heresy that says that Jesus was not fully God from his conception, but rather that the Spirit of Christ first came upon him at his baptism and then departed before his death on the cross. Because as they would uh, argue that God could not allow himself to be killed, but the Bible is clear that Jesus was and always will be fully God and fully man, as John seems to be emphasizing here. The water and the blood, these are two powerful witnesses. Let's look at the first of these, water. The water. Christ's baptism is one of those few events that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. So it's clearly important. Let's take a quick look at just two of these accounts. If you can keep your finger there in 1 John, we'll be coming back to it. Turn to Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. That's on page 558, 558 in the Bibles provided. Matthew chapter 3, beginning of the New Testament, flip, flip a couple chapters over to Matthew chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse 13. Getting a little sword drill practice here, you know, it's great. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now turn over a few uh, books to the right to the Gospel of John. John's Gospel, John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, that's on page 612. Page 612, if you're using one of the Bibles provided. So this is the, again, this is the Gospel of John, different from the first letter of John that we've been studying, but it's the same author, the Apostle John. So John chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit." And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now you can go back to 1 John chapter 5. We'll, we'll stay here for the rest of the sermon. Have you ever wondered why it was so important for Jesus to be baptized? I know I have. You know who else did? John the Baptist. He even tries to stop Jesus, but Jesus insists. 
So what is so significant about this event? First, these four passages are rightly used by Christians as proof texts for the Trinity. These passages make absolutely no sense unless you believe, as the Bible teaches, that God is one God and that He has always eternally existed as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Second, these passages are conclusive proof of the deity of Jesus, that He is God the Son. Here we have the clear testimony of the Father in a literal voice from heaven as to the identity of Jesus as His eternal Son, as well as Christ's communion with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove. This event convinced John the Baptist, and he became a witness. What is it that he said as a result of this encounter? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But there's another crucial aspect to this event. Third, here we see Jesus identifying himself with sinners. Even though he had no sins of which to repent, he accepted the baptism of repentance. John the Baptist's baptism was often referred to as baptism of repentance. He was showing that he could stand in the place of sinners, that he could be an acceptable substitute for sinners. Which leads us to the blood. The blood. The blood here refers to Christ's bloody death on the cross. Christianity is often accused of being a bloody religion. There are so many verses in the Bible that talk about Christ's blood, which has inspired countless songs and hymns about His blood. In modern times, many professing Christians shy away from talk of the blood and act embarrassed about the topic. But the death of Christ on the cross is an essential component of the Christian faith. Think about some of the events associated with that day in history. Three hours of darkness in the middle of the day, earthquakes, Graves opened and some people even being resurrected. The veil of the temple ripped from top to bottom. The supernatural events surrounding Christ's death were enough to convince a cynical, battle-hardened soldier in the Roman army of Christ's true identity. When he witnessed these events, the centurion said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. But talk of the blood doesn't just refer to Christ's death on the cross. It also speaks of the kind of death that he died. He died as a sacrifice. As Kent recently so ably preached from the book of Hebrews, Christ's death was a fulfillment of the bloody Old Testament sacrificial system, except that Jesus was both the perfect high priest and the perfect sacrifice. A sacrifice is a substitute. The sacrifice takes the place of the sinner. And there is no more need for sacrifices today because Christ was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute. Substitution, or as some theologians call it, substitutionary atonement or penal substitution, is the very heart of the gospel. The gospel doesn't work without it. God cannot justly forgive anyone's sins without it. Because of Christ's substitutionary death, God can forgive all who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. Not surprisingly, many of the same people who de-emphasize Christ's blood also deny or minimize the doctrine of substitution. That's the witness of the blood. Now let's turn to the third witness, the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is Himself a witness. 
How is the Spirit, how is He a witness? Martin Lloyd-Jones saw in this a reference to Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit first arrived to indwell believers, and, uh, and all the miraculous events that were surrounded with that. But also, all throughout Scripture, the Spirit does not draw attention to Himself, but always draws people to God, especially to Jesus Christ. He is also a witness through the Scriptures. God used men to write the Bible, but the Bible is clear that these men were moved along by the Spirit the way the wind moves along a sailing ship. This is how words written down by men can also rightly be called God-breathed or inspired. But the Holy Spirit is also an internal witness to all who believe in Christ. Notice the first half of verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Believers have the Holy Spirit of God living within them. He is the comforter of whom Christ spoke at the Last Supper. He is a powerful internal witness to who Christ is. It's also important for us to understand the relationship of the Spirit to the truth. Notice this phrase in verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Remember that phrase we looked at a few weeks ago, God is love, and how that meant that love is an important aspect of God's character? That's what's going on here. The Spirit is characterized by the truth. The idea of truth is not the Spirit, but the Spirit is always truthful. And this is an important truth for uh, many of our friends today who overemphasize the Spirit. The Spirit will never contradict the truths found in Scripture. If you think the Spirit is leading you to go against or go beyond or minimize the clear teachings of Scripture, you are not dealing with the Spirit of God. You might be, uh, it might be your own feelings. It might be the Spirit of Antichrist that we looked, up, uh, looked at many uh, months ago in this series. But it is not the Holy Spirit of God. Finally, this passage speaks of the testimony of God the Father. The Father. It's not so much that the Father is a fourth witness here, but that He is the overarching witness behind the other three. Remember that it was the voice of God that spoke from heaven at Jesus' baptism. And it was the miracles of God the Father at Jesus' death. And the Father sent the Spirit after Jesus ascended into heaven. Look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. This is a classic lesser to greater argument. John is saying, since we trust the testimony of human witnesses in a court of law, how much more should we trust, trust the testimony of a holy, almighty God? The God, as Paul says, who cannot lie. But the stakes are even higher than that. Notice the second half of verse 10. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. If you don't believe God's testimony about Jesus, then you are calling God a liar. And as John MacArthur explains, that is a great blasphemy. Failure to believe God is a very serious thing. But there are many other witnesses uh, we could consider. There are the other apostles and all the other human beings who witnessed Christ's life, death, and resurrection, including those who remained faithful witnesses even unto death, martyrs. 
There is the testimony of Scripture, especially the hundreds of Old Testament messianic prophecies that were perfectly fulfilled by Jesus. And as we've seen time and again in this sermon series, the love that Christians should have for each other is also, at least should be, a powerful witness. Creation itself is a witness of God's power and His character. And even a casual examination of human nature lends credence to the claims of Christianity. Much like how John only chose to cite seven of Christ's miracles in his gospel account, here he chooses to cite only three witnesses to support the truth of what he claims. I hope these witnesses, these testimonials, this evidence has convinced you of the truthfulness of the sales pitch I'm trying to give you. Now we come to our second point. Don't worry, our uh, next two points will be much shorter than the first. Now we're ready to see what our greatest need truly is. Point number two, the need. What is it we most need? Eternal life. Notice the first half of verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. Eternal life is what we most need. But what is eternal life? It's not some zombie-like existence. It's also not a boring life of sitting on a puffy cloud strumming a golden harp. It means the fullness of life, real life, in the presence of God forever. It begins now when we put our trust in Jesus, but it will be most fully experienced in our glorified bodies in heaven where there is perfect peace and satisfaction and where there is no sickness, no sorrow, no growing old, and no death. This is what you need. Even more than you need physical life, relationships, health, family, money, career, pleasures, or earthly awards, you need eternal life. You need eternal life above all things, and anything you could possibly be tempted to trade for it is a foolish bargain. As Christ said, what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So you've seen the evidence, you've heard the testimonials, and now you know that your greatest need is eternal life. Now I will share with you the only product that can meet this very real need. Point number three, the product. Look at the rest of verse 11. And this life, eternal life, is in His Son. Now look at verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The product is Jesus. You need Jesus. Really, we should change the title of the sermon. It's not what you really need, but who you really need. Eternal life is in the Son. If you have the Son, you have eternal life. If you don't have the Son, you do not have eternal life. It's as simple as that. But how can you have the Son? Notice the first few words of verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God. Believe. Believe in Jesus. As we saw in our previous sermon in this series, to believe in Jesus means to rely upon Him, to bank on Him, to trust in Him. It means believing that Christ's bloody sacrificial death on the cross is sufficient payment for your sins, all of your sins. And it means relying 
on that sacrifice. And when you do, you will also have the witness of the Holy Spirit within you. The Apostle John quotes John the Baptist as saying something very similar to verse 12 in John 3.36. There he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Our natural state is the wrath of God, and only belief, faith in the Son can save us from the wrath of God. This is another form of the truth test, one that we might call the Son test. We must have the Son to have eternal life, and we have the Son by believing the truth about Him. Well, what are some of the ways that we can apply this text to our everyday lives? I'm going to talk to three groups of people, one to the spiritually malnourished, two to the spiritually dead, and three to skeptics, to the spiritually malnourished. Are you neglecting your needs for your wants? Are you getting a balanced diet of the Word of God? Are you spending time in prayer? Do you make it a regular habit to admit and confess sin? Do you make a regular practice of repenting, continually turning from your sin? Are you more concerned about your physical health than your spiritual health? Are you more concerned about earthly achievements and awards than eternal achievements and heavenly rewards? Do you crave the pleasures of this life more than the pleasures of the next, the pleasures forevermore that Psalms describe, the pleasures that don't leave you empty, ashamed, or unsatisfied? To the spiritually dead, friend, if you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're not just spiritually malnourished today. You are spiritually dead. You need a spiritual resurrection, a spiritual second birth. You need to be born again. And the only way you can know that you have eternal life is to believe in Jesus. If you are unsure, would you please talk to one of us today or reach out to Faith Family Church today? Don't leave here today. Don't finish this podcast. Don't finish this video without knowing that your sins have been forgiven and that you have eternal life. To skeptics. Do you have doubts? Are you a skeptic? Kyle and Daniel and I are very grateful that skeptics often tell us that they feel very welcome here. We're we're glad of that. You're always welcome here. There is nothing wrong with having questions. God made you a rational being, so it's okay to use your brain. I urge you, examine God's Word. Test it. Think about it. Pray to God that He will show you its truth. There's a lot of great apologetic literature out there that can help make a rational case for why it's reasonable to believe the claims of Christianity. But let me warn you, if you refuse to believe in a supernatural God unless you see evidence, but then you refuse to believe any evidence that involves the supernatural, you're setting yourself up to always remain an eternal skeptic. It's not just religious people who can often believe what they want to believe. Secular people have that tendency as well. Don't reject the truth because you don't like it. Just because you don't like it doesn't make it any less true. This is a great passage for skeptics because it talks about the witnesses, the evidences for the certainty we have in Christ and the eternal life that we can have through faith in Him. Our next passage in this series will also be a great one for skeptics since it talks about the assurance, the certainty that we can have about our souls and about the truth of God's Word.
I hope I've given you a, a convincing sales pitch today. My sales pitch is really a lot like the prophet Isaiah's millennia ago when he said, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. But my sales pitch is also like Jesus' parable of the pearl of great price. I'm asking you to figuratively sell everything, to bank everything on Jesus, so that you can have fullness of life now and an eternity with your Savior forever. Has the testimony of these witnesses and the testimony of God Himself convinced you? What is your greatest need? Eternal life. Who do you need to have eternal life? Jesus. How do you have Jesus believe? Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.